Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right, last time we left off, Joseph had just saved everyone, and they lived happily ever after. The end. Mm, For a little bit, right? When we pick up the story again, 400 years have passed. Like, that is a long time. Like, 400 years ago, I know you guys are good at math, but that's like 1622. That, like, sounds like, I don't know, before America? (laughs) Like, that's a long time. So, in this time, it says in Exodus 1 that the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. The land we're talking about is Egypt. Now, this is this this phrase, right? Fruitful, multiplied. This should draw your your memory to the Garden of Eden, where God commanded Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and bless them in this. This is kind of a refrain, meaning a repeated pattern or phrase that you see in the scriptures. It's a, a phrase that we see with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and it's this idea of God's favor. And and you may be wondering how being fruitful or having children is a sign of God's favor, but that is who God is. We call him Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are concerned principally um, with this idea of us becoming like them. So God is remembering them, even though they haven't remembered him. You see, by this point, they are in a deep state of apostasy. They have seem to have forgotten their covenants. They have lost the priesthood. uh, And they, well, are in a dire strait because there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Well, duh, it's been 400 years. Of course not. But he becomes suspicious of these racially different uh, people, this immigrant group, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. And when there falleth out any war, now remember, like you got the Cushite Empire down in Sudan that's growing here. You got the Assyrians and Babylonians. And so he's like, there's going to be a war. He's like, these guys are going to join to our enemies and fight against us. Now, this is classic political rhetoric uh, to unite people. Like, it's a classic us versus them scenario. You see this with Hitler and the Jews. Uh, it is trying to identify these people are within our nation. This immigrant group are an enemy, and we need to unite against them. And so his first pogrom proposal is that he enslaves the, the Israelites, and he sets them to constructing what are called treasure cities in Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. <laughs> I want to make some sort of joke here that well, the act of multiplication was the only relief there was since there was no Netflix, and, but it seems like a poor taste joke. So even though I made it, I retract it here. seems like there, there's something bigger going on. Uh, it seems to, to carry the, this theme started with Joseph that God can use difficulty to bring about his purposes. But that just makes Pharaoh even uh, angrier, and he, he works harder on exterminating the Israelites, and he made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and he made their lives bitter with hard bondage. That's a phrase, right? So when slavery doesn't work to, I don't know, subvert these people, well, then Pharaoh decides to take the next step. He speaks with the Hebrew midwives, 
of which the name of one was Shifra and the name of the other is Pua. Now, this seems to be something that we can calculate population by. If they, they principally have two midwives to take care of the entire population, that might give us a feel for how big this society is. And he says to Shifra and Pua, he says, when you do the office of midwife to the Hebrew women, if it be a son, then you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, she shall live. The idea is that um, if they just let the daughters live, the daughters will marry Egyptians. And then over time, the Hebrews will be eradicated through assimilation. But the midwives out of reverence for God did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they saved the men children alive. Well, when Pharaoh hears about this, he's like, what the heck? And I love the midwives, like, just, they straight play dumb and innocent. And they're saying, they're like, I don't know what to say. The Hebrew women are just more hardy. And by the time we get there, they already are delivered. Shoulder shrug, right? (laughs) I don't know. And it says that God dealt well with the midwives, that, that he has them, causes them to have their own families and growth there. And the people continued to multiply and waxed very mighty. Just again, this sign of God's favor, again, this fulfillment of prophecy. So Pharaoh changes course. He takes matters into his own hands and he makes this public proclamation that every son that is born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the river. This is dark, man. I know you're familiar with this story, so you almost just skip over it, but this is evil. Like he is by far the worst person in our, our biblical story so far. And we've had some bad people, like Cain murders his brother in cold blood just to get his land. Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah, no bueno to camp out there. People of Noah, not good. But this is genocide. Like, we've had murders, but this is the first time we have the shedding of innocent blood on an industrial level. This is bad. Well, in the middle of this, there's a couple... Uh, they're of the tribe of Levi and they have a baby. He's a boy and they, they hide him for three months. Now, having been a, a father of three babies, like I imagine this is insanely difficult to do, especially in a time before suburbia and really separation for, between houses. Like there's no way they, they get away with this without collusion from their, their neighbors. But, but they get to the point when he's three months old that they figure we just can't do this anymore. Like Pharaoh's going to find us out. So they decide to obey uh, Pharaoh's command, ish. They throw their son in the river, but they put him in a reed ark. This is the, the, the sort of radical faith and trust that we see Joseph exhibit. Um, like like this is this is moving forward and having confidence that God will provide even though you don't see the end outcome here. Like the Nile is not a safe place. There are hippos. Like hippos are some of the most deadly things around. They look like all squishy and fun, but they will murder you. I like I want to see more high schools being called the hippopotamus. Enough of this like weird hawks or whatever like give me hippos there's some real violence there's hippos there's crocs there's black mamba snakes that grow up to 14 feet long and cobras that seems bad enough but there's also spitting cobras which do exactly what their name sounds like they do and they will spit poison in your face and deform you this is madness but it's also like the primary most basic aspect of being a child of god of being a covenant member it's trusting the father 
It's faith. It's having confidence in him, in his plan, in his outcome, even when we don't see how it could possibly work out. So they send this little boy out onto the river in his own little ark, trusting. They do have his his older sister, a little girl, watching from the shore. And then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And when she saw the ark, she sent her maid to fetch it. When she opened the ark, she saw the child, and behold, the babe wept, and she had compassion on him. And that's the moment that his older sister, the little girl, runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, I bet he's hungry. I bet that's why he's crying. No, you got to remember back in the day, like there's no formula. If a person's mother dies, right, and the baby needs nourishment, like they will hire a nursemaid, some woman that's still lactating. And, and so um, Moses' sister runs up and says, I know a woman you could hire to nurse him. And Pharaoh's daughter says, Go. And so she, she scampers off and brings back the baby's own mother. And Pharaoh's daughter says to, to Moses' mother, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. Through this act of faith, we get a, a better outcome than they could have imagined. Um, now they have their baby, but they have their baby legally. They're able to raise him a little bit, help him, nourish him, and they're getting paid to do it. Like, uh, they couldn't see this outcome, but they, when they took that leap of faith, that's when it, it comes to fruition. And the child grew, and his mom brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. Now remember, m- names carry meaning in the Old Testament, and Moses means to draw out or to pull out. And she says she names him this because he, I drew him out of the water. But it also foreshadows his coming role to pull the people out of captivity. Anyways, in between here, 10 and 11, you see that paragraph marker at the beginning of 11. Pay attention to those paragraph markers. Those divide stories more cleanly than verses do or uh, even chapter markers do, uh, basically. So time passes and we find out in verse 11 that Moses is now grown. We don't know quite what that means, but it means he's a grown-up human being. And he went out unto his brethren, and that means the Hebrew slaves. Like, it's not a mystery, like, that he's a Hebrew. He physically doesn't look like his adopted family. He's a different race. Um, And and we don't know from here, like, the, the biblical authors are rather sparse. We don't know what he looks like. We don't know what he's like. We don't know his motivation. We don't know if he usually goes out among the Hebrew slaves or if this is a first time thing. But he goes out and he looks on their burdens and he spies an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, just beating the crap out of him. And we have no idea what's going on in his head. We just have the verse. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, there's something shady about that description, isn't there? He slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, just the way it said seems shady, making sure nobody's watching, burying him in the sand. It doesn't tell us his thoughts, his motives. We, we have no idea what God says about his actions. Was he justified? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? It just doesn't tell us. And that's part of the genius of the Bible. It leaves things like this open and invites us to engage, to think and understand for ourselves. Well, then the next day, he goes out again. And this time he sees two Hebrews fighting and he steps in and he says, dude, why are you beating this guy? 
And the guy looks at him and he's like, you're not the boss of me. You're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Oh, instantly Moses is like, crap, 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 crap. He thought this was covered up. But this random jabroni, this random Hebrew knows what he did. If he knows what he did, everybody knows what he did. Oh, my goodness. And soon Pharaoh found out. So he sends the cops after Moses to arrest him. And there's going to be no trial after this. Moses is going to be executed for his crime. So Moses runs. He flees. He's a fugitive. He leaves completely the Egyptian territory. He won't be safe anywhere within the confines. He runs 400 miles away to a place called Midian. It might as well be another continent. And there... He sat down by a well. Now, come on now. You've read enough Old Testament to know what happens next when you sit down by a well. It says, and the priest of Midian had seven daughters. There it is. Next line, daughters come. Now, real quick, let's take a tangent on the priest of Midian. Sometimes when you hear the priest of blink, uh, it, it's not a priest of the, the God of Israel. Like Joseph marries a priest, a daughter of a priest, but this priest referred to here is just a, a, a priest of an Egyptian God. But this priest is a priest to the, the true God. He is a, a, a holder of the priesthood. And we know this through modern revelation, through Doctrine and Covenants 84. It is through this priest of Midian that Joseph, excuse me, that Moses gets the legitimate priesthood. Moses does not have the priesthood at this point. Um, Israel is in a state of deep apostasy here. They lost everything. So how does this random guy in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula have the priesthood? You remember, we talked about this before, but Abraham married to Sarah, they have Isaac, and that's where Moses comes from is through that lineage. But after Sarah dies, Abraham remarries a woman named Keturah, and Midian is one of those sons. Remember, Midian is the name of the town where he is. This guy is a priest of Midian. He, he's called in the, the story Reuel, and he's also called Jethro. I don't know why he's called these names, but he's called these two names kind of interchangeably. It might be a nickname, uh, a surname. We just don't know. But that's not even the point. The point is Jethro slash Reuel is a legitimate priesthood holder who can trace his priesthood lineage back to Abraham. And um, so you got this guy, Jethro Raul, and he has seven daughters. And Moses is sitting at the well, and these seven daughters come and draw water from the well. And they filled the troughs to water their father's flocks. And the shepherds came and drove them away. Now, I don't know, like, <laughs> I don't know what this is about. It seems rather rude, but keep in mind these are teenage girls, and the other shepherds are probably teenage boys. So this is probably equivalent to ponytail pulling right here. Not pleasant. And girls, I'm sorry. Apparently, this sort of behavior goes back thousands of years, and I don't know what to tell you. This is what you got to work with. Take luck. Because apparently, these boys do it all the time because Raul is surprised when Moses helps the girls and waters the flock that they come home early. He's like, how is it that you come home so soon today? Um, and so... Like, I, I don't know. Again, maybe teasing, is teasing young women is just tied to the DNA of young men. But the girls say to their dad, they say, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and drew water enough for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, where is he? 
Why is it that you've left the man? He's like, serious girls, where are your manners? Were you raised in a barn? I've raised you better than this. Call him that he may eat bread. And so they call him in, they sit down for dinner, and one thing leads to another, and Moses is content to dwell with Jethro. And in the course of time, Jethro gave Moses Zipporah, his daughter, and together they start a family. And life is good, right? But back in Egypt, it is not. During that long period of time that Moses is in Midian, the king of Egypt dies. And things don't get better for the Israelites. They groaned in their slavery and they cried out for help. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and had respect unto them. Now notice that this, this is huge. They are praying for help, but they have, they're, they're kind of apostate. They've fallen away. They're, they're lost in part because of um, how they have abandoned God. But God doesn't abandon them. Like the reason he remembers them, it says he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. And, and it, the implication is the longevity of covenants throughout lineage. Really that there is something to keeping your covenants, especially the sealing covenant, the crowning covenant in the temple, and how it can bless your children in the long run. One of my favorite commentaries on this idea comes from Orson F. Whitney. He's an apostle. He says, You parents of the willful and the wayward, do not give them up. Don't cast them off. They are not utterly lost. The shepherd will find his sheep. They were his long before they were yours, long before he entrusted them to your care. And you cannot begin to love them as he loves them. They have but strayed in ignorance from the path of right, and God is merciful to ignorance. Only the fullness of knowledge brings the fullness of accountability. Our Heavenly Father is far more merciful, infinitely more charitable than even the best of his servants. And the everlasting gospel is mightier in power to save than our narrow, finite minds can comprehend. The prophet Joseph Smith declared, and he never taught a more comforting doctrine, that the eternal sealing of faithful parents and the divine promises made to them for valiant service in the cause of truth would save not only themselves, but likewise their posterity. Though some of the sheep may wander, the eye of the shepherd is upon them, and sooner or later, they will fill the tentacles of divine providence, reaching out after them and drawing them back to the fold. Either in this life or the life to come, they will return. They'll have to pay their debt to justice. They'll have to suffer for their sins. They may tread a thorny path, but if it leads them at last like the penitent prodigal to a loving and forgiving father's heart and home, the painful experience will not have been in vain. Pray for your careless and disobedient children. Hold on to them with your faith. Hope on. Trust on. Till you can see the salvation of God. It's because of this sort of idea that Boyd K. Packer teaches we cannot overemphasize the value of a temple marriage, the binding ties of the sealing ordinance. When parents keep the covenants they have made at the altar of the temple, their children will be bound to them forever. 
Well, that's good stuff, right? So that's where we get this line, God remembered his covenant. God is good. And despite Israel's apostasy, he is preparing a way for their redemption. But like many of God's miracles, this redemption is going to come in an unexpected way. See, it's been years now, and Moses is keeping the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert. And he came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. That that term is used almost synonymously with Sinai, where they're going to go later. Sinai, excuse me. Um, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto Moses in a flame of fire out of the mist of the bush. And he looked and beheld the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Now this idea or this image of this glowing, brilliant tree is meant to draw your mind back to the the tree of life, the essence of God and his power in the Garden of Eden. Moses sees it and he's like, you don't see that every day. I'm going to go check it out. See why this bush is not burnt. And when he turned aside to see, God called unto him and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, put off thy shoes from thy feet for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Now, time out real quick. This idea of how to approach God, the reverence and humility we should express as we approach him in prayer. I'm not saying you got to take your shoes off every time you pray. That might be a little funky for some of you. But like, are you approaching him with awe and reverence? Just think about it. And God said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, Moses is a little freaked out by this at this point. See, Moses doesn't see himself as someone talking to God. Like, look at this. He's, he's, He's a fugitive. He's living on the outskirts. He's on the run. Like, he's not this exceptional being. Like he's not even taking his flock around the mountain. He's taking his father-in-law's flock. He's an insignificant nobody at this point. He's not the ideal human being. So he's a little freaked out by this. And maybe that's why back in Moses, God goes through such a, I don't know, how, such a, an extent to prove to Moses that he is his son. But things get a little bit more intimidating when God says, I have a work for you. He says, I have seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and I've heard their cries by reason of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them out of the land into a good land and a large land unto the land flowing with milk and honey. Moses is like, that's a great idea. Thank you for coming down. He says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people out of the, uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about? Like, I thought you were going to take him. He's like, nah, like, this is how I roll. This is how I operate. I have come down to rescue them through you. Moses is going to be the medium by which this redemption comes. Ah, that's interesting. But Moses is not sold. Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children out of Egypt? Like, 
Like, I am maybe the worst possible choice. Like, you would be better off just choosing some stranger that they don't know. Like, like they know me and they hate me. If, if it was a stranger, at least he'd start from a position where they aren't actively hating him. But God is not hearing this. He, he says, certainly I will be with thee. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. Okay, th- this point, this verse could not be more important. See, the book is named Exodus after the exit or escape from Egypt, but that's not even the point of this book. Most of this book actually is about when the people bind themselves to God through ritual and covenant. This is when temple comes in. This is where real redemption is going to take place in the covenant relationships that are created only in the temple. And God is foreshadowing that event and that importance right there. He's like, the token of my redemption takes place there in the temple. And he just gives Moses a glimpse of that there. But we will we'll go deep there. Don't you worry. And Moses says unto God, uh, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? And then what do I tell them? Okay, and this just says how far apostate they are as Israelites in Egypt in the last 400 years. They do not even know God. And that's the first step to trusting God. So God replies, I am who I am. And this is what you're going to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. What a fascinating title. The implications of being present and existing. Big and omnipresent, omnipowerful, right? Uh, Omnipotent is, I guess, how you say it if you're actually educated. But also the title is confusing. I am. It's mysterious enough to invite your contemplation to wonder about the grandeur of God. So I am. So go and gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me and saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you out of the affliction of Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. Then after you meet with the Hebrew elders, go unto the king of Egypt and ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and he commands you to let the Hebrews go. (laughs) Moses is like, oh, is is that all? You want me to go to the most powerful man in the most powerful empire in the world and tell him to let go of all his slave labor? That that sounds like it's a plan that will work. And that's just the thing, isn't it? Faith means we trust God even when we don't see how it could possibly work out. Elder Bednar says uh, something along these lines. He says, sometimes receiving inspiration is like a foggy day. There's enough light that you can tell it's not darkness anymore, but it's not night. But it's not brilliantly illuminated enough so you can see. Dude, let me try that again. That That was broken. Sometimes receiving inspiration is like a foggy day. There's enough light that you can tell it's not darkness anymore. It's not night. But it's not brilliantly illuminated. 
you can see just enough to take a few steps ahead into the cloudiness. I don't know about other people, but it occurs that way for me all the time. There's enough just to take a few steps, and then the light continues to help me see just far enough ahead that I continue to press forward. Ugh. For me, it's the same way, like you see just enough to take that step. But Moses isn't ready to take that step yet. He's like, no way. No one will believe me. No one will listen to me. Seriously, I I mean, I'll I'll go, but I'm telling you, it will be a hot mess from jump. And God says to him, what's that in your hand? He's like, "It's it's my shepherd's rod. And God said, cast it on the ground. He's like, okay. So he throws it down and it becomes a serpent. We already talked about the nasty serpents that are around here. So Moses jumps up and high steps it away from there because it's a snake and snakes around there aren't messing around, right? And then God says, grab it. Uh, no. Did you not just see me like high stepping away from here like the ground is made of hot lava? But here you get a glimpse into why God chooses Moses in the first place, the radical trust he is willing to put in God, even when it seems like a terrible decision. Moses put forth his hand and caught the snake, and it became a rod in his hand. Ah, that's interesting. You're worried, you're scared, you're stressed. He's like, I know what I'm about, son. I'm in charge here. If they don't believe, God says, try that. And Moses is still a little skeptical. So God says, put your hand inside your shirt. So Moses puts his hand inside his shirt. And when he pulls it out, it's leprous as snow. Now, this is scarier than the snake. God's not messing around. He is pushing Moses beyond his comforts, his limits, and simultaneously showing he's got him. I got your back. And he says, put thine hand into thy bosom again. And I'm sure Moses is straight losing his mind right now. You don't want to be rubbing like that leprosy all over your flesh of your your chest, right? But he does it. And when he pulls it out again, it's good as new. God says, if they don't believe your word and they don't believe the snake, the leprosy should do it. And if none of these things work, don't worry. I have other ways to show my power over the earth. I am in control. Moses is like, well, you may be powerful, But I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. I've got a slow tongue. And I love God's response. We we have all these excuses sometimes about why we can't do this or that. And he says, who hath made man's mouth? And not much of a response for Moses to go against that. He says, go, and I will be thy mouth. And I will teach thee what thou shalt say. But Moses is a chicken here. He's like, please pardon your servant, Lord, but please send somebody else. And now the anger of the Lord is kindled against Moses. He's like, are you kidding me? Have you not been paying attention? I got you here. You need somebody? What about your brother Aaron? And Moses is like, actually, that would be great. I'd feel a lot better. He's really good with words. Good. He's already on his way to meet you. (laughs) Get going. So Moses does. He goes home, counsels with his father-in-law. His father-in-law tells him to go in peace, so he takes off. And just like God said, Aaron's waiting for him. So Moses and Aaron, they, they tell all the words that the, the Lord had told Moses. Um, and they, they gather together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron acts as his spokesman and tells 
everything Moses has told him. And Moses did the signs that the God had given him in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel, that he had looked upon their affliction, they bowed down their heads and they worshiped. Step one, check. Just like God said, it's working great. Now for step two. Moses and Aaron went and they told Pharaoh, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. But Pharaoh's like, you're joking, right? Is this one of those hidden camera shows? Because you're ridiculous. Who's this Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord. Neither will I let Israel go. And he just encapsulates, encapsulates the, the real question here. Who is the Lord that I should trust him? When you come to know God, you will come to trust God, even in the dark. But Pharaoh, to show his contempt for such an absurd waste of his time with that respect, he makes slavery, which is bad enough as it is, worse. And when the people do not live up to his new standard, they are beaten. And when they ask Pharaoh, why is he being like this? He just says, go ask Moses. And they go to Moses and they're like, this is your fault. What is wrong with you? This didn't work. This is a failure. And Moses is like, you're not wrong. God told me I should go talk to you and then go talk to Pharaoh, show these signs and it would work. But it didn't work. He's confused. That's such an interesting conversation about revelation, about God, about our expectations. God says it's going to work and it doesn't look like it's working. And so Moses goes to God and despairing, he says, why, Lord? Why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought trouble on this people. And you haven't rescued your people at all. <laughs> and God replies, I don't think you understand who you're talking to. He says, I am the Lord. Living in a, a democratic republic, I don't know that we have any real concept about what he's meaning by when he's saying, I am the Lord. I am the king, the one sovereign ruler of this land. I am the ruler of this earth. And, and in this moment, he's setting up a showdown between himself as Lord and ruler and Pharaoh as Lord and ruler. And on a deeper note, under the surface, this is the story of the true battle that is going on. Pharaoh as a symbol of Satan, thinking he rules this world, sowing chaos and suffering in his wake, just like Pharaoh. But this is a story about who really rules here. Despite all the posing and the appearances, there is no question who the true king is. And God is about to make that clear. God, God says to Moses, do you know who I am? I am the Lord. I appeared unto Abraham, I appeared unto Isaac, and I appeared unto Jacob as God Almighty. And I established my covenant with them. And I have also heard the groaning of their children, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage. 
and I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore I say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you. This is the first time in the Bible this word redeem is used in this context. That word means simply to buy the freedom of a slave. But this purchase is going to be unexpected and kind of mysterious. And it echoes the freedom that Christ is going to, to ransom us for, the redemption he will pay, the purchase price he will give. And I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God. This is the covenant in its simplest form. Call it the Abrahamic covenant, the baptismal covenant, the new and everlasting covenant. This is it. This is the covenant. We will be his people and he will be our God. That is it. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, which bringeth you from out from under your burdens. See, by the end of all of this, there's going to be no question. I am God. I am in control. I know what I'm about here. How will we know that we are God's children, that he is our God? Well, you've got to try out what he's inviting you to do. You've got to give your burdens to him. Really, truly, completely give your burdens in a radical cliff-jumping leap of faith and never look back kind of way. And then watch. Watch as he brings you out under his, your burdens. I don't know how he'll do it. But you've got to jump first. Moreover, he promises, he says, and I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham and to Isaac, to Jacob, and I'll give it to you for an heritage. Why? Because I am the Lord. I'm the true king. I'm the real man in charge here. But when Moses passes this good news on to the Israelites, they don't listen because they're so discouraged by their circumstances. They're so sad about the affliction. Wow. Holy crap, wow. Like God is right there in their lives, but they're too sad to see him? Reflect on your own life, man. You've seen this. That's interesting. Can't see God because of our circumstances right now because we won't look up. But just because they are fickle does not affect God's long-suffering covenant faithfulness. God says to Moses, go in and speak unto Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that he let the children of Israel go out of the land. But Moses is like, my own friends won't listen to me. There's no way Pharaoh will listen. But God just says, Moses, you're not paying attention. I am the Lord. God wants us to understand something so important right here. See, most of the time we talk about God as a loving father and Jesus as a caring brother, which they certainly are. But there is something more God is trying to express. I am the Lord. I am the sovereign ruler over you and over this earth. I am the true king. See, what I'm, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm wondering about this. Like what would happen to our lives, to our study, to our prayers, to our worship if we really began to see Heavenly Father as King? What if He really is in control? What if He really does know best? What if He really sees things we don't see? 
worth considering. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.